If you would please turn with me in your copies of God's Word uh, to the book of Matthew and chapter 24, we will be considering reading all of chapter 24 and considering portions of chapter 25, but please don't worry, my comments will be brief. Over the past month or so leading up to Christmas Day, the body gathered at North Point has been considering together in a series of sermons the generations leading up to and circumstances surrounding the nativity of Christ, of his advent, of his arrival, uh, and the, the central focus or hinge upon which all of human history, all of history turns when the Son of God descended from heaven to be made a son of man born in humble estate, made to be a little lower than the angels and yet worthy of the worship of all creatures, great and small, both those visible and invisible. And as we revisited that great narrative of the fulfillment of God's word reaching all the way back to Eden, God had promised that the seed of the woman would one day come to crush the head of the serpent, to undo all of Adam's sin accomplished by Christ upon the cross at Calvary. So we now look to the year ahead of us. Let us consider this morning Jesus' teaching of his future advent when he will return to this earth. When the God-man will come, not in weakness of lowly babe, meek and mild, but in immense power and strength as a conquering king in victory and triumph, come to redeem for himself his bride and to execute his judgment over all his enemies. Matthew 24 and 25, we have recorded, was referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And in it, a question is asked of Jesus, really two questions by his disciples, after he had pronounced a sevenfold woe and prophecy of impending judgment over the rulers and chief priests of Israel and the coming sign of God's condemnation over their sin, their unbelief which was most heinously on display when they succeeded in their conspiracy to have Jesus killed. The sign which Jesus prophesied in our text will be manifested when the temple will be destroyed and left desolate. Let me just tell you now that I will not attempt to get into the more disputed points of interpretation concerning our text. Please do not be disappointed. Rather, we will hopefully see together as we focus on Jesus' answer to his disciples concerning his second coming, that we might rightly apply Jesus' teaching to ourselves as we wait for his return. As we read and consider Jesus' words to us, I'd like for you to have in your mind that we, the church, are to be ready And that we are to be holy and that we are to be busy as we expectantly wait for his return. Be ready, be holy, and be busy. I think these three imperatives stand out in Jesus' 
instruction to his disciples. Let us now take up God's words and give careful attention to his reading. Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gate. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is a servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken in his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now, there's a lot there, but I hope that you will have noticed that as with much of Jesus' teaching here in our passage, he provides his disciples and us with a multifaceted answer to the two questions that are asked of him. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus' answer, which we've just read, has taken up the whole of chapter 24 and will take up the whole of 25. And in these two chapters, he provides multiple vantages to help his disciples to understand his main point in answering these two questions. And for our time together, we are not going to focus on that first question, when will these things be? These things be being um, the events pertaining to Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the temple. Jesus answers that the temple would be destroyed even within the disciples' own lifetime, within their generation. Indeed, it was destroyed in AD 70 and remains desolate to this day. For our time together, we're concerned ourselves with Jesus' answer to the disciples' Second question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And we are going to focus in on verses 36 to the end of the chapter. And let me now just stress for you as plainly as I can the main points of Jesus' discourse. If you gain nothing from my preaching this morning, hear this. Jesus is coming back. He is coming. And we need to be reminded of that because I think that we are quite off to forget it. We need to remind ourselves and each other regularly that the Lord is at hand of his imminent return. It could be today. 
Oh, that it was today. If it was today, are you ready? I ask you, is the Lord Jesus' return chief among your thoughts upon your waking each morning? Through the busyness of your day, when you lay your head on your pillow each night, Jesus' answer to his disciples is a clear alarm to us that if it is not, it ought to be. The proper posture of a disciple of Jesus Christ is that of hopeful vigilant expectation as we await his return. And so Jesus' disciples ask him this question, Lord, when will you come? His answer, verse 36, I don't know. You don't know, Jesus. What an astounding response. How could he not know? Jesus has to this point proven time and again his divine knowledge. And yet here is this future event, the future event, the day that all history is moving towards, the consummation of all things. And here is Jesus, the son of God, equal to the Father in every way concerning his divine nature. And yet there is something so great, so important, so epical, which he in that moment does not know, not the day or the hour when it will happen, when he, that is Jesus, will come again in glory. When all flesh will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, when he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus says concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now your translation, translation may not include Jesus' exclusion of himself from the knowledge here spoken of in verse 36. But if you turn some time to Mark 13, 32, I'm fairly certain that your translations, you will see this same statement from Jesus recorded there. The disciples ask, when will this be? Jesus says, no one knows but the Father. His secret knowledge belonging at that time only to the Father. No one knows. If someone says he or she knows upon the testimony of Jesus Christ, that person, no matter how good their intentions, is lying to you. The fog over Jesus' ability at that time to know when these things will take place is a mystery. But our purpose is this Morning is not to dig into the nature of Christ and the limitations that the Son of God willfully experienced in his incarnation. The point for us here is no mystery. Jesus' teaching is very clear. These things will come to pass. And his disciples must be ready because the Lord Jesus Christ is one day coming again. 
and you do not know when he will come. Are you ready? Watch and be ready. Also notice in verse 3 that Jesus has taken his disciples aside to tell them this. Whenever Jesus does this, we need to pay attention. One of the most impactful sermons on me when I was first introduced to um, reformed patterns of worship drew me into notice that when Jesus takes his disciples aside, when he's teaching them away from the multitudes, the content of his teaching is not primarily concerned with those who are outside. It is primarily concerned with those who are inside, not with the unbelieving worlds, but with those who identify with Jesus, the church. Jesus, in this intimate setting, takes his disciples aside and he says to them, he says to us, be ready. Be ready. To illustrate his instruction to his disciples, Jesus, starting at verse 37, recounts to them the history of the flood. You, of course, can read of this history in Genesis 6. In those days, Noah had been warned by God that he was going to destroy the earth by sending a great flood because of his great displeasure with the wickedness of mankind. And so Noah, who was favored of God, who walked with God, received instructions from God to build a boat, a huge boat. God gave no natural signs to give any indication of this impending deluge. There were no weather reports broadcast predicting that there would be unusual precipitation. No religious leaders to verify Noah's prophecy. Neither did Noah's labor and commitment to build this enormous vessel persuade anyone to take heed to God's words proclaimed through Noah. As Peter puts it in his second letter, Noah was a herald of righteousness. Noah was a preacher. However eloquent or not with his tongue, he was most certainly pronouncing judgment and salvation by his actions, which proclaimed to the world that God's judgment upon the wickedness of mankind was coming and that a way of escape of salvation was being prepared. Get on the boat. Flee from the wrath to come. The life and ministry of Noah over the course of some 70 years cried out to the nations. The free offer of the gospel was there, envisioned before their eyes. Yet how did the people of the earth respond? They were eating and drinking 
Marrying and giving in marriage, the Bible says. They carried on life as usual. They were buying, they were selling, they were going here, they were going there, they were throwing parties, they were celebrating themselves all up until Noah entered the ark. The warnings were there. They heeded them not. Therefore, Jesus says they were unaware. Then the flood came. They were caught unaware. And immediately, they were no more. So will be the coming of the Son of Man, says Jesus. In spite of the clear warnings of the Bible, in spite of clear warnings from pulpits, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, in spite of innumerable commentaries and studies on the subject of Christ's return and reckoning upon the wickedness of mankind, yet when Christ comes again in glory, many will be surprised. Will you? If it were today, would you be surprised? Don't be caught off guard. Be ready. In verse 40 and 41, Jesus gives the more illustrative detail of what that day will be like, saying when two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Now these two verses are often taken as supportive evidence for a supposed secret rapture. But that requires imposing on the text a preconceived eschatology. And may my opinions fall to the floor, but I am of the opinion that what Jesus means here in verses 40 and 41 concerning the one man and woman taken while at their daily labor and one man and one woman or one left in the same circumstances has not to do with a supposed rapture, but rather the distinction within the church that up until this point, even now in our own time, remains invisible. That is the distinction between those who are of the elect of God and those who are not within the covenant community, between those who are of genuine faith in Jesus Christ, who are being saved by the grace of God, who are justified through faith by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and being sanctified daily in the truth by the power of the Holy Spirit, and those in the church who identify, or those who identify in some way with Jesus, who are not. And for lack of a better word, hypocrites. In the continuation of the discourse in chapter 25, Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a household of virgins and servants. And when you consider the points of continuity between these virgins, the wise virgins and the foolish virgins and the good stewards and the wicked, these parables appear to 
appear to support this interpretation of verses 40 and 41 concerning the taken and the left, those ransomed and those who remained condemned in their sin and unbelief. And I think this is the most logical interpretation of what Jesus' words here mean. Else, why the urgency to the disciples to stay awake? Stay awake, Jesus says in verse 42. Be watchful, for you do not know the hour when your Lord is coming. What does he mean? Stay awake. Is a call to vigilance over ourselves, over our sinful slothfulness by nature and constant needs to rely upon God to keep us from falling into temptation. Jesus is warning his disciples. He is warning us to keep watch over our hearts, over our minds, our thoughts, just as a man keeps watch over his household, over his family and goods, lest a thief break in and rob him of his treasures. This is a call to holiness. As the Apostle Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, we are to take captive every thought, for it is our private life, you know, thoughts that is so easily given to various temptations that give birth to sin, which leave many astray in unbelief, which God will require in accounting even our secret thoughts. Stay awake, Jesus says. Watch yourself. Be holy in all your conduct, just as he who calls you is holy, you be holy, for you do not know the day or the hour your Lord is coming. Be holy. The imperative to personal holiness is addressed in Jesus' parable starting in verse 45, in which is shown how our holiness affects our conduct. And our conduct will either be rewarded if we are found by Christ to be faithful in our duties or punished for our dereliction of duty and our wickedness. Do you see the wicked servant's chief sin? Was it mistreating those who were under his charge? Was it his debauched behavior? No, those are symptoms, peripheral sins that have sprouted out of the root and cause of all his misdeeds and wicked behavior. The wicked servant's chief sin was his disbelief in his master and that he would return. If I may ask you, what has been your mindset when you have found yourself in some sin or another? What were your circumstances? Is it not true for all of us that the probability of our falling into any given sin, into temptation, to be carried away by it is heightened when we are alone? 
when we think that no one can see. When no one is around, when there is a low likelihood of our being interrupted. And isn't that precisely the mindset of the wicked servant? He didn't believe his master was going to return. And have you ever considered that it is good for us that we do not know when our master is going to return? That it is good for us that we do not know the day and hour that Christ himself will suddenly interrupt everything. Brothers and sisters, this is a solemn warning to us to be watchful over ourselves, to be ready, to be holy, and lastly, to be busy. In Jesus' parable, the two stewards, what is the chief characteristic of the faithful and wise steward? He is dutiful. He is found by his master doing precisely what he has been commissioned to do while his master's way. Believer in Jesus, what is it that you have been commissioned to do while your master is away? Do you know? Are you unsure? Do you know where to find guidance? If you turn to the word of God, it will be made abundantly clear to you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, that word will search you. It will convict you and bring about change in you. In the broadest strokes, we have all been called to live upright and holy lives in every sphere. In all that we do, in every stage of life, in the good times, through sufferings, all the way till glory comes. Be it when we close our eyes as though we sleep and immediately we wake in the presence of the Lord's, or that when we look to the heavens we see them rent. As Christ comes in all of his glory, descending with a shout. This is true for children as it is for parents, for the age as it is for the young. Your calling, be you a Christian, is to perseverance in faith with hopeful expectation of the reward that is yours in Jesus Christ. That reward, as Revelation 22 tells us, is with him. To give to everyone according to their work. So be ready. Be holy. Be busy. The Lord is at hand. Are those words comforting to you? If they are, may the, your love of Christ grow. And may your assurance be made all the more sure. Are they convicting? May they cause you to turn from sin 
and from all doubting, and to run to the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, and to obey him that you in that day may hear when the king will say to those who are on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. As we enter a new year, may it be with invigorated commitment to our own personal holiness, that we who are new creations in Christ would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be conformed more and more and more into the image of the Son of God, and that our holiness and character and conduct would pour out in all our busyness, so that we would at all times, looking for that day, be ready when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. O Lord, help us to believe it and make us ready to meet you. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.